Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. The online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, and come on people, it's free, visit lynda.com slash WWII. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash WWII. Lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. That'd be me. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Some of the courses I recommend are the ones for WordPress and video and audio editing. But there's other more, you know, day-to-day ones like Excel 2013 Power Shortcuts, Income Tax Fundamentals, and Going Paperless Start to Finish. I've been taking Lynda.com courses on creating apps, website development, WordPress, things like that, and I really do like it. And for all my family members out there, you will be seeing tons of videos, well, crafted videos, on Disney World. For everyone else who is considering the free 10-day trial, with Lynda.com membership, you get to watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn on your own schedule, at your own pace. Courses are structured so you can watch them from start to finish or consume them in bite-sized pieces. You can browse each course transcript to follow along. Or, and this is what I've been doing, search for an answer and skip to that point in the video. You can also take notes and refer to them later. Download tutorials and watch them on the go, including on your iOS or Android device. And you can also, and this is my favorite part, you can create and save playlists of the courses you want to watch, and that way you can customize your learning path or share with your friends, colleagues, and team members. So, for those of you considering it, lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert or you're passionate about a hobby, say, I don't know, podcasting, or just want to learn something new, I want you to do yourself a favor and visit lynda.com slash WWII and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash WWII. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 125, Operation Exporter. 
Now that Crete belonged to Germany, high-ranking officials within the Luftwaffe wanted to keep going. Why not take Cyprus or Malta, then Syria and Iraq? Why not take the whole of the Middle East from the British? Take away their oil and prestige in the area. In war, the latter was almost as important as the former. But it was not to be. It wasn't really even attempted. And that's because of Crete. The losses there were so high, Hitler's enthusiasm for island hopping or surging into areas that did not interest him was gone. Now that Crete was under the Nazi umbrella, it was time to refocus on what really mattered. Russia. That's not to say that Hitler wouldn't take the Middle East if it was handed to him. And that's what some of his underlings were trying to do. The place to start was Vichy-controlled Syria. Actually, Syria had been mostly given back to the locals in 1936, but as France had been allowed to keep a military presence there, had access to their roads and ports, well, it was almost the same thing. Yes, if the French high commissioner there, General Henri Dent, could be turned to the German cause, a staging area would suddenly appear in Britain's back door. Then the danger of Rommel coming east would only be one of two fronts to be dealt with. It was a worthy plan. What's more, the British chiefs of staff did not trust Dents to stay neutral. Also, they began to give way to the pressure applied on them by the Free French. Men like de Gaulle wanted an operation there, and so began to weave tales of strong anti-German feelings and equally strong but false sympathy towards the British. In short, the chief's fear of dents and the pressure from de Gaulle dovetailed to create Operation Exporter, the invasion of Syria. Yet, how was this to be carried out? Crete had just been lost, but up until that moment, Churchill had been pushing Wavell to reinforce Freiburg. But with what? The British still had to check the offensive-obsessed Rommel in the western desert. The loss of Crete, just like Greece, had meant the loss, literally, of tons of equipment. And now Syria was to be invaded. And hadn't Wavell's last reserve force, dubbed Hab Force, just been committed to keeping Iraq in pro-British hands? That they had succeeded wasn't the point. The force had been assembled and used. And it must be remembered that Habforce had no serious air support. For as bad as Wavell's position was in relation to ground forces, C&C RAF Longmore's fighter options were even worse. So again, how is there to be air support for the western desert and Syria, not an unsmall country, and for Operation Battleaxe, fated to start in mid-June, just as exporter would be at its most crucial phase? but the decision was made. Syria would be invaded before the Germans could, not that they were, not directly. And this decision was made in London, not Alexandria. But the C&C Middle East was expected to carry out. And one has to ask this question. Was Churchill purposefully stretching Wavell out to cause failure? Or did he, like those men in uniform in London, really believe that all these offensives could be pulled off simultaneously. 
So Syria would be invaded in early June, as would Rommel be pushed back with Operation Battleaxe. General Maitland Jumbo Wilson, recently back from Greece, was put in charge of exporter. His forces would, again, be too few. Under Wilson was Major General Laverick and his 7th Australian Division, minus the 1 Brigade helping to hold Tobruk. Also, there would be the 5th Indian Brigade of the 4th Indian Division, recently back from Eritrea. But despite Churchill's Tiger Cubs recently arrived, Exporter would only have three tanks and practically no armored cars. But in this modern war, mobility was essential. So, a motorized cavalry brigade, using only trucks, and a horsed cavalry regiment was tacked on, taken from Palestine. To help further the cause, the Royal Navy would offer up a cruiser squadron and bombard in advance of the forces going up the coast from Palestine to Beirut. Yet the ace was to be a fast-moving Glen ship recently thrown in, so commandos could be landed either behind enemy positions or to give the knockout blow. Sounded reasonable on paper. But there was more. The Free French would participate as well. General Lugentil Holm would lead a patched together two brigades, attacking further inland. But Wavell was strongly against this part of the plan. The Vichy government was mad enough at London for the attack on Mares el Kabir, and the Germans had limited themselves to only agitating in Syria. So the question was, Wavell's question, if the hated Free French were sent in as well, how could that not spur Dents on to fight passionately? Was Dents secretly hoping the British would come in so he could offer up token resistance and then give up, as de Gaulle said? Wavell was all but screaming, no, and he was right. Not that it mattered. His views meant next to nothing for Churchill. To be clear, making plans such as Battleaxe and Exporter was the way to go. That's how wars are won. But these two advances, perhaps to make up for Greece and Crete, suffered from the same snags. And neither were fully appreciated by the Prime Minister or by the Chiefs of Staff in London. The tanks Churchill had pushed through London and then through the Mediterranean were not battle-worthy, not for the desert. Some had been damaged on the voyage by seawater, some were put together badly as Britain rushed to gear up for war. The men working the lines were thrown into their jobs, much like their uniforms, and had not worked out their own flaws, much less those of the tanks. To rectify all this took time. Time Churchill wasn't giving Wavell. He wanted Rommel pushed back. He wanted Syria taken. He wanted Malta protected. He wanted Cyprus kept from enemy hands. He wanted it all, and he wanted it all now. Problem was, this was not realistic for anyone, certainly with Germany having years head start in regards to mobilization. But reality never went far from Wavell's mind. Knowing he was going to take it on the chin, Battleaxe was pushed back to June 15th. It should have been pushed back more, along with Exporter. But the C&C was doing all he could. And the sad thing was those in Britain, in the know, 
knew as surely as could be that Germany would be attacking Russia soon. So the rush was artificial. Germany would be committed to a major land war, the likes of which they hadn't seen since France. So why not focus on one area at a time, with overwhelming ground and air forces, take Syria, and then push back on Rommel and relieve Tobruk? But it was not to be. So for now, Exporter would start on June 8th, Battle Axe June 15th. But this was not a big enough gap to move men from one theater, if indeed the first was successfully concluded, to the other. But as touching British war politics, the dates were too soon for the men on the ground, especially those working with the new cruiser tanks for the first time. Their officers were learning their capabilities and how that changed the larger picture in combat. This was not enough time for the RAF to properly support both endeavors, yet, obviously, way too late for Churchill, which meant too late to save Wavell. But before Wavell, there was RAF C&C Longmore. He had been more outspoken than Wavell, and thus was cashiered before battle commenced. Invited back to London for consultation, he never made it back to the Middle East. Yet Churchill was safe in doing this, as Longmore's profile did not shine as brightly as the CNC's. Wavell was put on notice by this. And because battle was impending, Longmore's Air CNC Deputy, Air Marshal Tedder, was moved up. In this, Churchill had the support of the British Defense Committee, These men might have ran the British war effort, but were supposed to listen to the men in uniform on the spot. This wasn't happening, and soon many would pay the price. The Vichy forces in Syria had been reduced the previous year. Men had been sent back to France. Military equipment had either gone to Iraq, now meaningless, or had been hidden from the eyes of the Armistice Commission. There is such a thing as French pride. Yet the remaining force was still respectable, around 40,000, just a bit more than what the attackers were bringing. And these men were capable fighters, with experienced, hard-nosed officers and leaders. As for the troops, most of them were not French, not that it mattered. There were six Algerian, three Tunisian, and one Moroccan battalions. As well, there were four Foreign Legion battalions, made up of Germans, Spaniards, and Russians, again loyal to their officers. There was also Senegalese battalions, but as they were mostly used for crowd control, were not very popular with the Syrians. As for the heavy guns and armor the Vichy in Syria had to hand, there were three legionary artillery regiments and two armored regiments. This came down to about 120 guns and 90 tanks. The Vichy Air Force would prove over the coming weeks to be more than a match for the RAF. As for their naval forces off of the coast, there was a mixture of destroyers and submarines. But their biggest asset was the information they received from Admiral Godfrey, holed up in Alexandria. He purposefully maintained good relations with the British powers that be in Alexandria and was able to glean much information to pass on. As for the Allies, a very patchwork force was put together. 
the base of the forces going up the coast, were various battalions of the 7th Australian Division. Of it were nine infantry battalions, a machine gun battalion, and an anti-tank battalion with divisional artillery. But it was a newly comprised force with not much training to speak of. Whereas the Free French Division was bringing a Marine Infantry Battalion, a Foreign Legion Battalion, and four battalions of troops from Equatorial Africa. But these forces were not nearly enough. So the British threw in two Indian battalions, the 6th Rouge Bantana Rifles and the 1st Bunjabis of the 5th Indian Brigade, and one British battalion, the Royal Fusiliers. As noted, there was a smattering of cavalry and armored cars. But the true punching power of Operation Exporter would come from the Australian tanks. These were added to the Transjordan Frontier Force under Major General Glubb, who actually had knowledge of the area. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. So, the Vichy leader Dents knew the Allies were coming, and due to the layout of the land, their routes were equally obvious, which allowed him to plan his defense. The two routes from Palestine were one along the coast, which led to Beirut, and the other further inland, just to the east of the Lebanon mountains, again leaving Palestine, which led north to Damascus. These roads were the crux of controlling Syria. But if things went well, units from Habforce, having calmed Iraq, would invade eastern Syria from Baghdad, while a few units from the 10th Indian Division would guard their right flank. But these would only be used if the attacks towards Beirut and Damascus went well. The reason these last two groups were optional was that their routes would put them close to neutral Turkey who had made it clear to all that their status would not change and incursions would not be tolerated. Exporter commenced on June 8th, but the RAF, having responsibility for more than just the campaign, got distracted with targets other than those of the front line. Fortunately, free French aircraft took up the slack. The Royal Navy did a better job along the coast, having selected ships just for this adventure. But again, free French ships participated as well. That was the good news. Because of the speed this operation was put together, plus the lack of training or practice, the one clever part of Exporter ended in failure, which in war means death. Because the plan of attack was determined by the geography, so too was the Vichy defense. Each river bridge, city, and rise would be defended along the expected routes taken by the Allies. About halfway up the coast towards Beirut was the river Tyree, which was sure to be well defended. The clever idea was to land the heretofore unused commandos of the 11th Special Service Battalion, stationed on Cyprus, on the northern or far side of the waterway, 
behind the Vichy defenders there. Taking the bridge at the Tyree would go a long way to getting the Australians to Beirut. But as the commandos were only told at the last minute, were not given time to practice, were not told of the situation on the shore, were dropped at the wrong place after the first attempt was cancelled, which allowed the Vichy defenders to see what was coming, led to the complete destruction of this normally invaluable, highly trained force. The folly of war. In some ways, the French had been expecting the British to attack them in Syria for the last 20 years. Such was the fluctuating tension between the two, and had plans upon defensive plans to choose from. Whereas the British, who never really considered it, now threw something together. But here, the previous Great War dominated the Allied thinking. Surely, Germany was the enemy of both sides, not the British. Surely, the Vichy French were just looking for a reason not to fight against their, of late, ally. If the attacking forces put their officers in front with a white flag and just explained the situation to the proud Vichy, they would surrender after a token show of resistance. More folly. Wavell had been right when he predicted that the mere sight of free French troops would infuriate the Vichy officer corps. After all, de Gaulle and his were siding with the killers of Mares El Kabir against their own countrymen in their time of need. Still, things started out well enough for the Allies. On their far right flank, coming out of Transjordan, the 5th Indian Brigade was able to take Dara and then move on north from there to the next town, about 10 miles. Their ultimate objective was Damascus. Meanwhile, a battalion of the 21st Australian Brigade moved north along the coast while a second battalion paralleled them further inland. Yet, as the first serious defensive roadblock was not reached until the river Latani, a little more than halfway to Beirut, the Aussies were able to cross the river Tyree without harm. So far, so good. The bodies of the commando force that was supposed to help them had not been discovered yet. As for the Australian left flank, Admiral Cunningham had allocated from his reduced fleet, thanks to his losses concerning Crete, one cruiser squadron and a group of destroyers. But because his ships had been lost to German air power, he made damn sure this force was covered by the RAF based out of Cyprus and Palestine. So British air power was on the lookout for the Luftwaffe. But the real question was, what to do if engaged by Vichy naval power. After all, the hope still was that those in command in Syria would see the error of their ways and surrender. So, at the outset of exporter, the standing naval order was, quote, to act as developments indicate, unquote. June 8th, the first day, ended well. The various attacking fronts moved apace. But June 9th, brought the question all in Alexandria and London were dreading, as French naval units loyal to Vichy moved in. That day, the French destroyer Goupard and Valmy landed shells among the Aussies along the coast. To make matters worse, and to clarify their intentions, 
When British destroyers arrived on the scene, they too were attacked. Soon the British destroyer Janus was damaged, while the cruiser Phoebe just dodged a French torpedo. But the Vichy were just getting started. Then the British destroyer Jackal was damaged, and several RAF planes were shot down. So much for moderation and wishful thinking. More Royal Navy ships were brought into the area, which caused the French attackers to retreat back to Beirut. The Germans were aware of some of this and hoped to exacerbate the tension between the two, perhaps thinking this was truly the beginning of bringing Vichy to their side. That same day, June 9th, German bombers from Crete, yes, their victory there was already paying dividends, attacked Alexandria, to the point where local dock workers would not help the British by laboring during the night, trying to fix what had been wrecked during the day. As for the Aussies heading up the coast, the second day of advance brought them both good and bad prospects. The river Litani was crossed, but as the French retreated from the oncoming Commonwealth forces, in good enough order that it was obviously planned out all along, the Australians came across the bodies of the dead commandos. Again, so much for the tepid Vichy naval vessels and a quick victory with relatively few losses. On moved the Australian 25th Brigade and British Cavalry. But the further north they went, the harder their going was. The British Cavalry were mostly transported by trucks, but lost more and more of these as they advanced. And though the Tyree had been crossed directly eastward from there, some miles inland, at Mergeon, the Vichy forces stubbornly held, which meant the Allies along the coast, the left flank of the attack, surged on alone. What's more, the Aussies only had three tanks with them, but two were lost during the 48 hours of fighting. Still, General Wilson reported that, so far, things were going well if not exactly according to plan. But looked at dispassionately, with hindsight, the main advance had lost most of its armor. Its right flank was held up, and the defenders were getting more tenacious with each step. Clearly, the French were husbanding their resources and stretching out the Allies' supply line, breaking up the invaders' united front, and would only then hit the British hard, as they believed they were beginning the end game at Beirut and Damascus. But Wilson and the men under him would learn the truth. In summation, C&C Wavell had been right. The Vichy leadership looked upon the Free French under de Gaulle as dishonorable traitors who had sided with the British, were willing to kill their own countrymen for London. Churchill, de Gaulle, and all their advisors were wrong. Syria was going to be a tough nut to crack. It would cost the Allies dearly to achieve this victory. The question was, how high of a price were they willing to pay? As for Churchill, after Yugoslavia, Greece, and Crete, the sky was the limit. Yes, Wavell had been right. Not that that was going to save those men fighting in the sands of Syria, or his career.
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say hello to my latest members, Joel K. from Monroe, Georgia, Steve R. from Graham, North Carolina, Stephen P. from Glengarry, Glengarry, Australia, Cynthia N. from Henderson, Nevada, Ian Miles, I'm not sure where you're from, Ian, but let me know and I'll be happy to add it next time, and Andrew H. from Bow Boeing, New South Wales, Australia. And as far as the two the people that made donations, I just want to say hello and thank you to Mark L., the British expat who is now in Dresden, Germany, and Robert E. from Irvine, Texas. Thank you all very much. And next time we will finish up Exporter and jump into Operation Battleaxe. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.